You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Howdy, partner. Welcome to The Worship Review. They missed the conversation we were having about David Crowder and his cowboy hat. I don't know what conversation you're talking about, Colin. (laughs) Welcome to this podcast, which critically and charitably evaluates the songs that are being sung in the church. My name is Colin. Believe it or not, I'm a history professor. Someone somehow gave me some credentials and uh, actually hired me. So I'm a historian at a large research university in the Midwest of the United States. As always, each and every time, I'm joined by my co-host and pal, Tyler. Hello, my name is Tyler. I'm a linguist, a friend of Colin's, and a former leader of music in the church, like Colin. And we decided to start this program because we had this experience and wanted to offer to the church something that we would have liked but didn't have access to at the time. It's strange that, as far as I know, there really isn't anybody else doing this, because in the academy, we've got peer review. That's the gold standard for determining what research is good and what isn't. And you would think that there would be more in the church. Maybe one of the reasons that there isn't is because no one wants to step on anybody's toes. And that's the good thing about our position. We are, we have our careers in the academy, so we're not too worried about that. We will step on toes. Yeah. Now, I think the other thing is perhaps the people who do this professionally, unlike us, are getting paid for it and working for music labels or bigger churches and not necessarily interested in publishing what they find. Yeah. It's kind of nice to be outside of the industry in some ways, but also having been intimately involved in it for years as lay people. Yes. So what we're going to look at today and what we're looking at in this series are redone hymns, hymns that have been redone recently by well-known popular Christian artists. And today we're looking at the song, Oh For A Thousand Tongues by Crowder. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. Tyler. You're going to tell me about this song, I'm sure. What is happening in the song? What's the song about? Give us a little summary before we dig into the details. This song is glorifying God, impelling the singer to spread his name and glories further among the earth, and reflecting on some of the things that God has done in Christ and praising him further for that. Tyler, why... What is going on with the title of this song? It's a really weird <laughs> okay, title. I, I have a lot to say about this, but the first thing I'll say is that this was not the original first verse. Okay. This song has 18 verses, and what's now commonly sung is five or six of those. Yeah. And the original first verse is now the final verse, and we actually are jumping in, in this version and in many other modern versions of this, to the middle of Wesley's, Charles Wesley's construction here. Mm-hmm. So we're jumping into, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. When you hear the words, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, what do you think of, Colin? Now, I think of actual tongues. That's 
that's where I go. But that's a bizarre image, which is why I find the title and the language a bit strange. Right. You think of a thousand human tongues. Yeah you know, flapping in the wind or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it sounds like a scary monster if a person had a thousand tongues. Right. I wanted very hard for tongues to mean languages because we have in Revelation 7, 9, uh, every nation, tribe, people, and language, King James Version uses mm -hmm. tongue there, many tongues, um, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So we we would perhaps be tempted to think, oh, a thousand is not a literal number, but a kind of figurative a big, big number, number uh, meant to impress upon us the multitude of tongues, tongue then being language. Mm -hmm. That sounds clear. That sounds fine. And frankly, that's what I wanted it to be, Colin. That sounds way more comforting. It's not. <laughs> it's not what it is. It is comforting, but it's not what it is. Peta Bula was a Moravian minister and hymn writer. Who, what is a Moravian? A Moravian, the, uh, the brother church, like they were um, pre predominantly German-speaking um, Central European movement that really emphasized a a kind of intimate relationship with Christ. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm utterly stunned <laughs> that I asked that question, and you knew the answer. Oh my goodness! <laughs> they, Somebody they wrote a get ton this of man on Jeopardy as <laughs> you know, quickly as possible. You know Zinzendorf? Nicholas no, Zinzendorf, I Jesus. don't know. <laughs> he wrote Jesus, Thy Blood and Righteousness. Okay, this I know kind that. Of intimate song. Um, in German, they're called the Brüdergemeinde because people kind of know of them more in Germany. But Moravia is, is obviously a, a region in, I think, Poland. Obviously. Um, a Moravian minister once said to Charles Wesley, and he was himself citing a hymn, but I don't know if Wesley knew that. He said, if I had a thousand tongues, I would praise Christ with them all. Oh, wow. And, the praise monster. <laughs> yeah, some kind of Dungeons and Dragons oriented thing. Um, but this this was a reference to Johann Menzner's German hymn, Oh, dass ich tausend Zungen hätte. Oh, if I only had a thousand tongues. So Wesley was inspired by this sentiment and decided to write this song. And so I think as much as we want to interpret a thousand tongues as a thousand languages, I don't think we can. Okay. I think we have to say this is if I had a thousand tongues and, you know, hopefully this isn't one man with 1000 tongues dangling from his mouth, but maybe, um, if I had a thousand ways to sing or something okay. like that, um, I would do that. Um, the rest of it's, you know, the rest of it is way less unsettling. But just that first line, if we really think about it, is a bit crazy. Yeah. The first line and the, obviously the title. Now, let's get into some of the words, shall oh, yeah, we? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure, so sure. I, I, obviously we're talking about the title, but, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. Yes. So we are singing the praise of my great Redeemer. This is hinting to us that we're talking about Christ here without explicitly saying his name. And then we, we get the exposition of that by calling him my God and my King, mm -hmm. both things that Christ are, and the triumphs of his grace. Psalm 145.5 says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Okay, so we are praising our God and our King, 
the his glories and the triumphs of his grace. And you might be wondering how grace triumphs necessarily, because it's not intuitive. Triumph is an active verb, and grace is an idea, right? Um, Romans five eighteen through twenty says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, referring to Christ's atonement resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A very long Pauline thought there, but we have grace reigning in triumph over sin through Jesus Christ mm-hmm. our Lord. So I think that is what is meant by the triumphs of his grace. Okay. My gracious master and my God assist me to proclaim so then the song goes into my gracious master and my god assist me to proclaim to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name it's almost like the singer doesn't get the tongues that he wants so he just asks god and says god i don't have the tongues capable of doing this so i just need you to help me tell everybody about you. Yeah, and I'm going to leave aside the tongues for a minute because okay. it's so distracting for me. It's hard <laughs> for me to think clearly. He he appeals to God, his gracious master. And in many parables, Matthew 25, for example, the 10 talents, we, we see that God is like a master to us. In fact, he is a master to us and has given us responsibilities and we are his servants. And He's asking his gracious master, who is God, to assist him in proclaiming and spreading through all the earth the honors of God's name. And you're suggesting that this implies that he doesn't, in fact, have the reasons, or they don't necessarily come to mind? No, that the, he t- needs the to... tongues. He doesn't have the tongues. And are you referring here to yes. languages? or no. to? In the first part, he's saying, I, I wish I had a thousand tongues to sing the praise of my great Redeemer. Then he doesn't obviously have a thousand tongues. So he's like, God, will you just help me then? To... I just got this one. Yeah, I've just got one tongue. So God, will you use it, please? Yeah. I think that's what's happening. Fair enough. Then to me, so like musically, it's interesting because the song is kind of like marching and marching and marching. And then there's, I find it kind of jarring. There's kind of jarring musical change and, and kind of almost like halftime. Yeah. So come on and sing out loud. Go loud. There is one great love. Then we get this. So come on and sing out. Let our anthem grow loud. There is one great love, Jesus. Yes. 
we have a change here in the address C of this praise. So in the beginning, it's third person for a thousand tongues to sing my great redeemer's praise. We're talking about objective things that exist, but not addressing them directly. And then in the second verse, we did address our gracious master and our God. And then now we are turning to a different group and telling them to come on and sing out. Yeah. Come on. To let our anthem grow loud. So it addresses the congregation, exhorts them to sing out and to get louder, right? Maybe if they had a thousand tongues, they could be quite loud. They need to get louder with Crowder. (laughs) Good reference there. Um, and it, it proclaims that we have an anthem, a specific anthem, let our anthem grow loud. And I wondered what the anthem was, because right after let our anthem grow loud, it says, there is one great love, Jesus. So is, is the anthem the name of Jesus? Some things later in the song seem to imply that that might be what's going on, but, um, we see that there is one great love, Jesus. So Jesus is both the anthem and the one great love. And I think this interlude, if we can call it that, or exhortation perhaps to sing louder, is meant to bridge one verse to the next because there's one great love, Jesus, and then we have the next verse, Jesus, the name that charms our fears. Ah, okay. I wonder if that's what's going on. Now, as you mentioned, it's a little bit jarring in part because the rhythm shifts because this um, the song opens with there's a pickup and then a a beat that gets emphasis ma da 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 and then so when you get to, so come on and sing out it it does yeah. kind of jar um, jar you but. I think this bridge is meant to pull us into the Jesus, the name. Oh, okay. I just find this chorus a bit contrived, and it's just kind of a a slightly more vapid way of just saying, come on, come on, everybody, let's let's sing. Come on. I mean, the hymn was already saying that Mm -hmm. and was saying it in a better way. It just kind of seems like a raise your hands in the air moment. Yeah. For a rock concert. Let me see your lighters. Yeah. Something like that. But what does this mean? There is one great love. I don't know. So devoid of context, it's a little bit confusing and vague. It will. Is this the love that exists within the Trinity or the love that Christ has for us? And subject. We just, it's just, we just don't know. And again, Mm -hmm. it's, it's probably hard to go wrong. It's not like it's. Again, it's not like it's ambiguity that's probably it's going to lead us down a bad road, but it just it's just unnecessary ambiguity that does it does it's not like this ambiguity brings up complexity or richness. It just kind of it's like scatters everything, kind of like a prism or something. You get a nice clear beam of light, and then this chorus just kind of. Mm-hmm. I was thinking kind of grammatically when you said there's no subject and object because. The verb to be, you're you're actually right. It's it's actually a copula verb, which means it, it joins together two ideas without assigning an object to one of them, which is kind of unique among verbs in oh, Indo-European yeah, languages because one. generally yeah, yeah. there's a, a subject and an object. This is why when you answer the phone and people say, is this Colin? You can say, this is he, rather than this is him, because him is the object form right. of the pronoun. Um, but it's because it's a copula 
Um, and also it has the impersonal there as the subject of the verb. There is one great love, which is t generally used to imply existence or being. Mm. So um, there is a car in the parking lot. There exists a car in the parking lot. Um, but yeah, I, I see your point. It's not, I'm, it's not clear what this accomplishes. Then we get back into the song moving again, both musically and lyrically. So Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease, tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. Okay, we learn in this verse that Jesus is a name. <laughs> well, we don't, we don't learn that. But... No, but the first line doesn't say Jesus charms our fears. Right. It's Jesus the name. It's, right. it's a word. Right. We learn here that Jesus is a name and has this remarkable ability of charming our fears, yeah. which um, not many things do. And if you're curious about what charm means yeah. here, you are in good company. I was also kind of curious about this. I've sung this several times, maybe several dozen times, and not thought about what charm means here, because we know charms to be kind of magical incantations yeah, or like charisma or, spells. or something. He's got charm, you could say. Yeah. Yes. And definition four of the Oxford English Dictionary for charm is to overcome or subdue as if by magic power to calm, soothe, allay, or assuage. So it's an antiquated use of this verb because we would never say, oh yes, um, Colin, I was nervous that you weren't going to show up, but when you did, it charmed my fears. Yeah, We wouldn't say that now, but no. at the time, this was quite a normal usage. Yeah. Uh, for example, Alexander Pope, when um, Charles Wesley was six years old, he published uh, an ode for music, with a K, music, mm -hmm. uh, and he said, music, the fiercest griefs can charm. So, that's the sense in which this is being used here. It's not referring to magic. Um, or charisma. Or charisma, but a calming presence. And this name bids our sorrows cease. Yeah. It, it, it brings them to an end. Mm -hmm. And our fears are, are soothed. And we learn in the latter half of this verse that this name, Jesus, tis means it is. It is music in the ears of the sinners, it is life and health and peace. So Jesus' name is pleasing music to the sinner's ears. And I wondered if if Wesley were making a clever reference to this Alexander Pope ode from when he was a boy, because hmm. Pope said, music, the fiercest griefs can charm. And Wesley is saying, Jesus charms our fears, and it's music in the sinner's ears. Maybe yeah. that's a tenuous link to draw. But I don't they were around at the same time. No, so. the, this the, this is a subtext that often occurs in writings of various sort among poets and authors of prose and authors of music and playwrights. This is a real common these sort of self these sort of little reference games, very very common. I I imagine that it's deliberate. Okay, and it would also 
perhaps lend the song a little bit more prestige among yeah. educated Absolutely. People. Those little references are signs of sophistication, mm-hmm. right? In the you have to remember that when this was written, although many, many, many people were Christians and were well versed in scriptures and allegory and those sorts of things. Not many people were literate still. And so the hymn writing club was very small, and it was much like the academy would be today. So no, lay people, lay people, I'm making us a clergy, non, the non-scholar, non-scholars tend to not find much interest in the works of scholarship. It's much better when those works of scholarship are translated by journalists and other popular writers and bring it, bring those views out to the, in kind of language that makes more sense to the broader population. But if you ever look in like the nuances of a, of a, of an ap- academic field, you will find these little references and inside jokes and just these little subtexts happening all the time in, in works of scholarship because academics know especially in a field like mine, that you know, only a few hundred people are going to read these things. And so it's kind of, you're, you're publishing them for all to read, but you know that only a few people are really going to like read, it, read all these words and, and that sort of thing. So these little, these little references in hymns in the 18th century and 19th century are, are on purpose, and they're, they're, they're doing that same sort of thing. You may also know, as an academic, that some people will only read it to see if you've referenced their work. Absolutely, <laughs> right? Absolutely. <laughs> to see if you include those kinds yes, of references. Definitely. And some, uh, you know, review, reviewer number two will often reject your paper because you didn't reference him or her mm. or their graduate student or whomever it was. Yeah. Mm. But now we are getting into the weeds, probably too. Um, <clears throat> Let's get to the next verse, yeah, which is the, the next. The next verse is really nice because this part that we just looked at, these are all good things, but what is the real payoff? And then we get it. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So come on. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoners free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Really, really gets now into the meat of what Christ accomplished. And you might notice that the there's been a shift now away from the name of Jesus to mm-hmm. the person, because we've got he. Right. And I think we can say here, this is giving a clear example of how it is that his name is life and health and peace mm-hmm. to the Christian and also describing some of the specific honors of his name. So we see here that he, Christ, breaks the power of canceled sin. Mm. I think so one there, of the best lines in the song. Yes, I agree with you. There are two actions going on, right? Mm-hmm. We, we see that sin has been canceled mm-hmm. in a legal sense. It has yeah. been atoned for. And its power over the Christian is broken by Christ as well. 
And I think this is best explained with a reference from Romans uh, chapter 6, verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And then later on in the same chapter, verse 14, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. So the power, the mastery of sin over us has been broken, as it has been canceled by Christ's death. And he sets the prisoners, the ones who were under its mastery, under its control, free, not to go and do as they please, but mm-hmm. to be his servants, Christ's servants. And his blood has a purifying purpose here in this verse, in the second mm-hmm. half. It can make the foulest clean, which kind of reminds us of Paul declaring he's the chiefest of sinners. Mm-hmm. Um, the foulest, most wicked persecutors and most uh, eager indulgers in carnal sin. In the verses that aren't here, murderers, harlots— <laughs> Publicans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and he names them explicitly in some of the omitted verses, like you said, um, are made clean by his blood. And his blood availed, which means succeeded, for mm-hmm. me. So I think he's including himself. In fact, doesn't—Wesley actually calls himself the chiefest in, in one of those omitted yeah, verses he does. as well. So yeah. he's saying, I, I am the worst of these. Yeah. And his blood was successful for me. It's a Sufjan Stevens moment where he— <laughs> lays out all these horrible types of sinners. And then he says, like, well, I'm worse than all of you, basically. Oh, right. Um, so reference to John Wayne Gacy. Yeah. Right. That's Sophion Stevens. What am I best behavior? Right. I am really just like him. <laughs> In my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. So I was showing that song to my sister about six months after I started listening to Sufjan Stevens, and she was in high school at the time, and I was in high school as well, and I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was showing how, and it is, it is brilliant. Yeah. It was showing how the Christian understanding of ourselves as the chiefest of sinners and and as in no way better than anyone else was borne out and that we can look at wickedness and say, if not for the Lord, so go I, right? Mm -hmm. And so I showed this song to my sister and I was like, yeah, he's, he's kind of talking about how we're all in our hearts no different than even the most wicked people. And I played her that song and, you know, it was like, on my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look underneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. And my sister said, stop the car. I'm getting out. This is way too creepy for me. <laughs> so she got out and she rode home with someone else from where we were going. And I was, I was like, wow, I guess I really freaked her out with this song. And yeah. I, I wasn't saying that I have people under my floorboards yeah. or anything like that. <laughs> did you prepare her for the song I in any way? I did not. I was okay. so naive as a high schooler. Yeah, so, so 
I had a, I first heard this song from a Midwestern friend of mine because Sufjan Stevens really became a thing in the Midwest. Makes sense, I think. Michiganer. Yeah, think. exactly. And this was a, the Illinois album. And so, you know, he's showing me this on the West Coast, this Sufjan Stevens thing. And he prepared me. He's like, you need to understand that this song is a little bit creepy. Here's what, blah, 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 blah. And so I was able to listen to it kind of knowing. But then I showed it to my wife in the same way you showed it to your sister. And to this day, like if that song comes on in the car, my wife's like, skip, skip it. <laughs> it is very disturbing. It is a disturbing story. song. Story. The song is, yeah. the song is not, well, well no. The, 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 the song is disturbing. Sure. It is, it's, un, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's kind of meant to be. It's, it's, it's one of those uses, um, this is really getting into a tangent, but, you know, like, I, I think there are, like, there are appropriate times when, there are t- sometimes when a little bit of vulgarity can be necessary. Like, Paul himself uses vulgar language in a couple of places where it is necessary to highlight you know depra- some kind of depravity or or to highlight God's forgiveness we dare not minimize our sin and that song a song like that really lays it out yeah you know or like say the passion of the christ i've never seen mel gibson's film the passion of the christ but i imagine there can be some benefit to contemplating i'm not saying that that movie is biblical i again i don't know i've not seen it and obviously there are issues with portraying christ you know images of christ so on and so forth that some people have um but you know it is good to contemplate the degradation for example that mm. that christ endured like that that there there are some benefits to that there are obviously some places where that can go that are wrong yeah or, it definitely or, places a heavy emphasis on the brutality of his physical suffering. Yeah. In and his in, passion. And in this original, in the original hymn, Wesley really does try to lay out the severity of sin, the kinds of things that are just disgusting, not vulgar, but just that are, that would have been seen as some of the worst things. Again, murderers, harlots, publicans, etc. So. Do you have an example of that for listeners who don't want to wait? Let me give you two stanzas, for example, that have been omitted. Harlots and publicans and thieves in holy triumph join. That's shocking, okay? These are the most disgusting people, and yet they're joining in holy triumph. Saved is the sinner that believes from crimes as great as mine. So he's equating himself there with— Yeah, as great as is an equal comparison. With harlots and publicans and thieves. Now, I'm sure that Wesley was not any of those things, but he recognizes that— there's not there's no ranking of sin right. here, right? All sin we are we are damned before the law. Mm-hmm. If we're if we're damned in one small way, we're damned before all of it. And it is truly out of the heart of a man that sin comes, right? It's not right. what we put in ourselves, but what comes out of us that reveals right. our sin. And you know, the next line is murderers and all ye hellish crew in holy triumph join. So again, that shocking contrast. Believe the Savior died for you, for me the Savior died. Mm -hmm. So again, Wesley is saying, these horrible people can, these hellish people, murderers even, can join in the triumph of grace. And he, the Savior died for you, and he died for me too. Like Mm -hmm. that, there's an equality also of salvation. Mm -hmm. 
So there's a quality of guilt and there's a quality of salvation. These are pretty fantastic lines. They're they're stark, they're 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 uncomfortable. Nobody wants to sing the word murderer in church. No one wants to sing the word harlot in church. I I dare you to find any I've never sung the word harlot in or whore or something like that in church. These are these are pretty strong words. Wesley was willing to put them into his song to to make a point mm-hmm. about the severity of sin and the triumph of God's grace. So I'm not saying that these uh, lines shouldn't have been omitted in Crowder's version, but they do add a lot. They add some grit mm-hmm. and some detail to what he says about the triumphs of his grace. To be honest with you, I, I actually kind of like that frankness more than I like the figurative thousand tongues. Mm. What was the last part of each of those verses? It was So the first one is look and be saved through faith alone. Oh, excuse me. Um, saved is the sinner that believes from crimes as great as mine, and believe the Savior died for you, for me the Savior died. Right, because that that reminds me of Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the grave, you shall be saved. Mm -hmm. He speaks from listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. He speaks in listening to his voice, new life the dead receive, the mournful broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. So direct reference here to Ephesians chapter 2. Yeah, and in this verse, it's enacted through listening to the voice of Christ, which I wonder, is is this a, a, a hint that it's his gospel that we're hearing? Or is it, okay, when it says he speaks, it's not saying that he literally is, you know, pouring forth audible noise from heaven. So this has to be his gospel being spread through the kind of missionary works described earlier on in the song, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. The honors and glories of his name. And we see in the second half of this verse, some of the lowly being brought up Mm -hmm. by this faith. So the mournful broken hearts rejoice. So Mm -hmm. those who couldn't have thought of rejoicing before are now, you know, skipping yeah. and dancing. And the humble poor believe, mm-hmm. so the economically downtrodden. Yeah. Tyler, uh, let's just stop there just for a second, yeah. because we have, we criticized a song, I don't remember which one it was, uh, for not clearly limiting phrasing like this, yeah. to just generally speaking about the poor and you. just generally speaking about the brokenhearted or, you know. So th- there's one of the lines that is taken out is, See all your sins on Jesus laid, the Lamb of God was slain. His soul was once an offering made for every soul of man. So that is quite an explicitly delimiting claim about the atonement. Yeah, that's a universal quantifier. Yeah. Every... Yeah. So you've got that, but then in the verse in the one of the verses that does survive to make this Crowder song, we have glory to God and praise and love be ever ever given, given, 
excuse me, by saints below and saints above the church in earth and heaven. So this would presumably be saying, actually, it's just God's church mm-hmm. that is at least singing and proclaiming. Yeah. So you could kind of make a reasonable inference that mournful broken hearts and humble poor are also the church because mm-hmm. it's sung about later. Right. What do you think, Tyler? Well, as to the potential for universalism, I think there's a scale, and on one end you might have a kind of double predestination, sure, and on the other end you might have total universalism. Mm-hmm. And something about shedding his blood for all the souls of men, I don't think is necessarily universalism sure. because it could be a kind of arminianism or a wesleyanism where it well, that opens, would make sense wouldn't yes, it? It, would, wouldn't it? <laughs> it it opens the door so to speak for all men but then only those who choose yeah come to faith and receive the blessings of it i think you're right and the seeming contradictions in this song I think encapsulate Wesleyanism in many respects. Wesleyanism is often pitched as a kind of middle way between Arminianism and Calvinism. And I don't think it is, but it's kind of pitched as, well, God predestines those whom he knows will choose mm-hmm. him, mm-hmm. right? So you can see how Wesley would probably not have a problem saying, yep, everybody gets this gets kind of the gift of the gospel, but at the same time, there is still this exclusive group in the church. So yes, it's not universalism in that he's not saying that everybody gets saved, but he's also, he, he, it, 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 he's not drawing clear limits either, apart from a few places which where we can kind of infer limits, but we have to do so with some work. Yeah, definitely. Now, as to defend this use of the humble poor and or the mm-hmm. mournful broken hearts and the humble poor, this reminds me a bit of the opening to the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ addresses the poor in spirit. Blessed mm-hmm. are the poor in spirit, um, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, that seems to yeah. me, those are universal Yep quantifiers yeah the poor in spirit is kind of general mm-hmm. um but christians acknowledge that that is referring to christians who realize their spiritual poverty yeah and you know because of the effects of sin or mourning so i think perhaps this is a reference to that yeah yeah i think you're right actually and i hadn't thought about that sermon on the mount Makes a lot of sense. Glory to God and praise and love be ever, ever given by saints below and saints above the church and earth and hell. Christians who have been elected to salvation and who are alive now offering their praise offer their praise simultaneously with Christians who have gone before us into death and are now praising God in heaven and await their reunion with their earthly bodies. Yep. Yep. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Yes, it is. It really is. It reminds us that when we sing, 
we are singing with those who have gone before us. We're also, in a way, singing with those who come after us. There's this atemporality to the church mm-hmm. that is is really quite beautiful. Then in this, uh, <laughs> then in this version, we get this other bit <laughs> again, a kind of strange transition or change. There are so few words that never grow old. There are so few words that never grow old. Those words are already growing old because we're repeating them. Jesus. Colin, have you ever been in a conversation with one other person and then someone who is maybe a little sleepy or drunk is kind of with you, but then they zone out for a minute and they come back into the conversation and you guys, you and your friend have progressed to a certain point in the conversation and then this person comes in out of left field with a comment like that's what this feels like to me glory to god and praise and love be ever ever given by saints above and saints below the church and earth and heaven there are some words that never grow old it's like where did that come from (laughs) man uh it's it's true that the the name of jesus will never grow old never decay but he doesn't say the name of Jesus. He just says there are some words. There, some- there are there are so few words. Which words? Jesus is one word. I don't like, know. Which the, words? The, the names of the Trinity, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's what? What is this? It, it's also a very different sentiment, too, because we've we've gone from this specific praise of God to a reflection on the fact that words grow old, right? Which yeah. isn't necessarily it, not just necessarily. This isn't really relevant here. Who cares if words grow old? Like, God doesn't grow old. We're talking about praising yes, him. Yes, what does this have to do with anything? This was actually recorded. Like, this wasn't live. Like, he thought about these words and was like, yeah, let's put these in. And then his producer was like, yeah, let's put these in. And everyone okayed this. And it made it onto the album. Like, at no point did somebody say, what? 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 What do you mean by this? Like. Again, this is why there needs to be some peer review. Mm. It just, uh, again, maybe we're missing something, listeners, if we're missing some philosophical significance about why the fact that there are so few words that never grow old has some meaning. Let us know. I did not understand this. I think there may be, in the minds of some, a conflation of relevance with sincerity. So something can be totally sincere and we perceive it as being relevant to what's going on in the song. Or they're put on maybe the same level of importance in songwriting. So a song can be going in one direction and then you have this, you know, we can, inter- I don't think there's any reason to think this is insincere, right? Oh, of course Sin- not. There's yeah. a sincere reflection upon the transience of words. And that's not a problem, I guess, in this context because. You know, it it sounds kind of deep to yeah. say, "Wow, you know, the name of Jesus never grows old," um, but it's not. It's definitely not relevant to what came before it. Yeah, it reminds me, like, and I give this advice to my undergraduates sometimes. Like, sometimes you'll get an essay where it's clear that the student has thought very deeply 
about the argument that they're making, but they thought so deeply that they were in their own mind. And so their brain like filled in the gaps in the essay. So actually the essay is almost unreadable to anybody else, but it makes total sense to that students because the student has read it through and written it and, and immersed himself or herself so much in the paper that they're just filling in the gaps in their mind, you know, even though they didn't write things down. And I wonder if this something like this happened. Like, did Crowder have some insight in like meditating and meditating and meditating on this hymn? And so this, this sentiment made loads of sense to him. And he, he, for him, logically, it made sense for some reason to stick this in there, but he didn't ever give us the key to understanding it. Like he didn't, he, he's put point A and point C in there, and we have no idea what B is that bridges the two. There probably is something, yeah. That uh, like I don't, th- I don't, I I think it's probably just a, a a lapse like that in some way. But yeah, I can see a number of verses that we've done so far that could be the first step, yeah, of a series of stepping stones that got that us led to there. him to the reflection on the transience, yeah. And the the vanity of yeah of language, and it doesn't. I mean, your analogy to like the, the kind of weirdo doesn't help because like you know David Crowder, you know, kind of he's got that long beard and he's just kind of. I mean, I've seen people hanging out in downtown Eugene that kind of look like that. And if you approach them out of the blue, they might say, "There are some words that never grow old." <laughs> exactly. Goodness gracious. All right, let's bring this yeah, uh, part home. Why not, Tyler? So uh, the last kind of question that we get to is just an overall question about clarity and comparison, and obviously comparison to the previous versions. Now, obviously, we cannot—there's so many uh, omitted verses, so it might be worth just highlighting a few or a couple that have been left out if we talk. I want to talk about that, too. But what are your overall thoughts on the song? I would ding this song on coherence. Not because of what Wesley wrote necessarily, but because of how it has been moved around. So yeah. his initial first verse is now the final verse. But if you had that as the opening verse, uh, if you had as the opening verse, glory to God and praise and love be ever, ever given by saints below and saints above the church and earth and heaven. Mm. I think it would give you a good preface for yeah. what's coming. All these peoples, nations, tribes, sinners— if that's the first verse, by the way, that um, really helps contextualize that statement about the poor and the 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 broken hearts, by the way. Right. If he's establishing right at the get-go that we're talking about the saints and the church. Right. It is. It is superior to, I think, retain that initial first verse yeah. as the first verse. And the intrusions from Crowder don't add— coherence they actually subtract coherence as we've talked about yeah um and clarity but there are some beautiful scriptural moments in this song Absolutely. that are not to be passed up i mean the communion of the saints the um the lifting up of the poor yeah i think poor in spirit i'm i'm drawing a uh, an extension of the argument there but yeah um, the resurrection, like yeah. new life, the dead receive. Him breaking the power of canceled sin. Oh, that's yeah, really, really good stuff. I think you're right. That's probably the best line. Yeah. I think you said one of the best, but I think that is the yeah. best line in this song. Um, so the original composition is probably too long to be 
a hymn if there's 18 verses. I don't know what church would let you do that without stoning you. <laughs> but if you can find a way to work with some of these original verses without any other intrusions, I think this would be a, a very a, a, a good song to do. Yeah, not all of them. Yeah. There, there's at least one that you can definitely not sing in church now. Uh, so, awake from guilty nature's sleep, and Christ shall give you light. Cast all your sins into the deep, and wash the Ethiop white. Oh. Don't do that. Yeah. We, we should not sing a verse like this. But about, what's weird? Oh, sorry, go ahead. You can't analogize the forgiveness of sin to washing an African person into white skin. That, right, this is... Also, what does that even mean? You, if, 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 if someone from Ethiopia... This is just ludicrous. You can't wash yeah, but the, someone with this a lot is of a melanin prominent, in their skin this white. Is, no, but this is a prominent idea amongst some European Christians in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s even, in the 1900s in some cases, uh, that part of like the curse maybe was dark skin. Mm. So, you know, some intrinsically racist, unbiblical racist ideas uh, being thrown in there. And, you know, Wesley is a product of his time in that regard. And this is one of those areas where, you know, hopefully this does, you know, this hasn't been made, hopefully some canceling, cancel happy person doesn't find this. I mean, certainly if the Methodists find this, um, they may, some, some of the more liberal Methodist denominations, they may throw out their hymn books, which it's one of the last vestiges of the gospel that still exists in some of those denominations. So we hope that that doesn't happen. But um, obviously, not all these verses are awesome. Yeah. It's just where I'm get where I'm going. What surprises me about this um, racist verse is that he refers to the nations. He says, "Look unto him, ye nations, own your God." And then he says, you fallen race. And race there is in the singular. So we have many nations, but one fallen race. Mm. And so I think I had interpreted that as him maybe implicitly acknowledging the uh, singular personhood of humanity. Yeah, the human race. Where each individual is made in the image of God and all of man— Right, the human race, all of man since Adam has fallen into sin mm. and, and not making distinctions among those nations because he calls them the fallen race. So that's kind of surprising to me. Look unto him, ye nations own your God, ye fallen race. Look and be saved through faith alone. Be justified by grace. Mm. Beautiful. Really good. I think that's a keeper. So Tyler, after looking at all of this, would you endorse this song? This song is not one of the best that we have done. But there are some sound theological nuggets in the verses that we have preserved in Crowder's presentation of it. And though there are some distracting things in his intrusions, and though there are some troubling things in some of the omitted verses— and though there are some good things in some of the other omitted verses that aren't troubling, 
um, what we have is a few good verses. He breaks the power of reigning sin is so good. Look unto him, ye nations, own your God, you fallen race. So good. And then there's there's like the weirdness of the thousand tongues that aren't actually a thousand languages like you want them to yeah. be, but a monstrosity. Yeah, the tongue monsters. Just, there's good stuff. There's bad stuff. There's some real bad stuff. <laughs> I, I give it a kind of lukewarm okay. endorsement. What about yeah, you? Yeah, that's about where I am. I, and obviously, we're looking at the Crowder version. That's what we're talking about. The yeah. five but, but verses. Like, I. I had no idea about that washing yeah, verse. Washing and, the and Ethiopian. That, that like freaks me out. Yeah. So so the judging just on the Crowder version, it's okay, you know. But I think his additions are not really helpful. Um he omits a couple good verses that could have been in there. So, you know, there there are better songs to do, but you know, there's not it's not like explicit error or anything in it that should cause it to not be, you know, that it would cause me to not endorse it. Tyler, did you give it a rating? Of course you did. What did you give this song? Yeah, I give this song three out of five margins. And here's why. There's a video of Crowder giving a tutorial Ah, of how he does this song. And he mentions that he found this old hymn and that he read a bulletin that Charles Wesley had written. And Charles Wesley had said, don't add or subtract anything to this song because it cannot be made any better than it is. If you must change anything, do it in the margins. And then Crowder said, he chuckled and scrapped a bunch of verses oh and added goodness. his own chorus into it. And you've got the you've got the hymn and then you've got the additional chorus which uh, Wesley had asked us not to ever do. Yeah. You know? so, so you just went right ahead just, and did it. Well yeah, 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 you know, he and his brother they sent out this. Do you, you know this still they they got to it's he and his brother and it's like 1760ish, you know, and yeah. they're that they've they've had, you know, their whole you know, he's written what 6,000 hymns yeah, at this point and uh, so he he sends out this letter that he's like I should have sent this out earlier, but here's the deal, guys. Listen, please, if you want to make any additions or subtractions from the hymn, just do it in the margins. Like, don't touch the, don't touch this. It can't be improved upon. Like he says it. He's oh, wow. like, this can't be improved upon. Or so, just, just don't touch it. How about that? So, you know what it's like when you're told no, don't do something. That's right. Good now, but. Yeah. You know, having had this discussion, I'm clearly glad that at least one of those verses yeah. was dropped. Um, but. The kind of irreverent and carefree yeah. way in which he just said, "Yeah, well, I don't, yeah, I don't really care if that's what he thought. I'm going to take what he wrote, wrote, and you know, make it better." Okay. So that's the sort of thing that sovereign grace doesn't want to have happen, <laughs> right? That's that's the right. kind of violating co-author, right? And also, to be fair, it's quite arrogant to say this cannot be improved upon. Yeah, so I it think is. Crowder sure. is right to laugh at that, but. The, the incredible irreverence that he showed in sure. laugh, just outright laughing at that and, yeah. and adding. And then to add, so come on and sing out is kind of funny to me because this was a very theologically rich song in some yeah. ways. I'm going to give this one a three as well. Three out of five, $6,300 suits. Come on. So, is this Michael Scott? No, this is, this is, uh, this is Joe Bluth. Oh, so okay. just that come on come so on. come on and sing it just reminds me of 
Come on. Spill, spill some on my $3,000 suit. Come on. The guy in the, the $4,000 suit is holding the elevator, but the guy doesn't make that in three months. Come on. Oh, why don't I just take a whiz through this $5,000 suit? Come on. $6,300 suit. Come on. Sure, sure, sure. The guy in the $600 banana suit. Come on. And every time I see the word come on, I think of Job saying it in season or episode six of season two of the greatest television show ever made in history. Let nobody add to it or subtract from it. Whoops. They already did that. Ruined it. Netflix, I'm looking at you. Can I say one one thing that sure. I, th- I was going to say yeah. about my rating criteria? I almost called him the apothecary in Varrock because there's this game called Old School RuneScape and Crowder looks just like one of the characters oh, wow. in this game. But that's all. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of The Worship Review. Tell your friends, follow us on Twitter, send us a donation if you wish. We'll catch you next time. Take care. Peace. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.